Although 20% of the U.S. population lives in rural areas, only 11% of physicians practice there. Residents of rural areas tend to be older, poorer, and in worse health than their urban counterparts. And in many of these communities, the nearest hospital or specialist may be hours away, creating additional challenges for local primary care physicians. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Heather Kovich, Chief of Staff at Northern Navajo Medical Center in Shiprock, New Mexico. Dr. Kovich has written a perspective about life as a rural health care provider, part of a section on rural medicine published in the journal. Dr. Kovich, as someone who started your career in urban areas, how has your advice to patients changed in a place where referrals are challenging and there are few specialists, few hospitals nearby? Yes, I did grow up in a very urban area in Philadelphia, and so for the last eight years I've been living in a small town in northwestern New Mexico. There have been rewards and challenges to working and living in this area. For myself, it's been really gratifying to live in community with my patients and my colleagues. I see my patients and my coworkers when I pick my child up from school, when I go to the post office, when I go to local high school basketball games. I get asked for medical advice in those settings, but I find that helpful. And to some degree, you know, I get to share a frame of reference with my patients and my coworkers that brings us closer together. There are some challenges to working in rural areas. You asked a little bit about how my advice to patients has changed. I've learned to adjust my medical care to our geography. Access to medical care can be a problem both in urban and rural areas. But specifically where I live, my patients travel for hours to get to their appointments. At my hospital, it's another 200 miles from a tertiary care center. So that affects our medical care. And I think as primary care providers, in a lot of ways, we do more. We have a broad scope of practice. We do more at every visit. I try really hard to address all of my patients' complaints at each visit. So if somebody comes in for back pain and she has uncontrolled diabetes and she's overdue for her pap smear, I try to take care of all of those things at the visit because I know how difficult it can be for her to get back another time. At my hospital, we've tried really hard to be able to accommodate our patients. I understand that if a patient has hitchhiked 30 miles to get to their appointment with me and they're 20 minutes late, I mean, of course, I'm going to see them anyway. Similarly, when the weather is bad, a lot of our patients live on dirt roads, so their cars get stuck in the mud. Our clinics are generally empty on days with really bad weather, and we try to reschedule people and accommodate them. We try really hard to meet patients where they are. We've had satellite clinics that we've opened in more remote parts of our catchment area. These are basically double-wide trailers, but we staff them a few days per week with physicians and nurses and diabetic educators, and we send a pharmacist along to dispense medication at the time of the visit there. And then there's a perspective in this issue by Drs. Kelleher and Gardner that talked about school-based clinics in rural areas as well. That's been a really integral part of our pediatric and adolescent health care. We staff physicians at schools and do everything from asthma to prenatal care to mental health services in that environment to make it easier for patients to access. But another way that I've really adjusted my medical practice to the geography is to think really hard about the necessity of referrals, as you mentioned. Whether a patient has to drive 40 miles to our next biggest town or 200 miles to our tertiary care teaching hospital, the transportation and the time spent doing that can be really difficult for patients to manage. So we try to refer really only when necessary and for the fewest number of visits for the patient. We manage what we can ourselves. So we do more. You know, I read my own EKGs. I read my own pulmonary function tests. And we work really hard to keep our skills up so that we're able to do those things well. And that's a challenge, but it's something that I enjoy and most of my colleagues who work here also really enjoy about our job. So in a third perspective article, Mann and colleagues talk about a telehealth model that's intended to help lower-resourced hospitals keep their, for example, maternity services and provide the safest possible care. 
Does your hospital rely at all on telehealth services, and do you expect that kind of technology to grow in the future? Yes, and yes, that was a really interesting Perspectives article, and I felt that it spoke to me and to my situation here as well. Yes, we do use technology in telemedicine. At my facility, where we have extremely high rates of diabetes, we use telemedicine for our retinal screenings. So patients come in, and when they see their primary care doctor, they can get retinal photographs taken that same day and transmitted to the Joslin Visual Network, where they get evaluated by an ophthalmologist. So we don't have an ophthalmologist on staff, but that frees up our optometrist to do a lot of other really important work for patients. We use teleradiology services after hours, which is also really helpful. And the Indian Health Service, which I'm an employee, has also started working on telebehavioral health, and they became a telebehavioral health center of excellence back in 2009. We don't use that specifically at my hospital, but our network certainly uses it a lot. Indian Health Service in other parts of the country has also started using telemedicine for emergency care in the ER as well. One thing I would want to point out about telemedicine, it is really helpful. It is not the only answer to some of the resource limitations in rural areas. And in my opinion, telemedicine works really well when you have a real relationship with the people on the other end of the line. We have at my hospital a resource which has been really wonderful, which is a partnership with Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And so they do twice monthly teleconferences with us. And, you know, we were able to tell them what our learning needs are. And then they find the appropriate expert on their staff to either give us a lecture or do a Q&A or to review cases with us. But the really nice thing is they also send volunteers regularly to work with us on site, which has been wonderful. And so they send a specialist for a week and we schedule the appropriate patients with that physician. But they also spend most of their time teaching us while they're here. They get to learn about our community, and then they get to understand the challenges that we deal with, and it gives them a different perspective also. But then we know them. We have those contacts. We've met them face-to-face. We've generally had dinner with them. So once we've worked with them, we feel a lot more comfortable later on emailing them or calling them with questions that come up later. One of the challenges of rural medicine, and Dr. Mann and, and all had also discussed this, but, you know, we can feel very isolated as rural providers. We train in academic centers where we have this constant interaction with other professionals, and it can be a real shock and feel very isolating to move to a rural environment. So I think these programs where you build real relationships with experts at academic centers can go a long way towards making us feel more supported and more of a respected part of the medical community. And those relationships help us, but more importantly, they help our patients. So I've said a couple of times that we do more with a broad scope of practice But in order to make that safe and effective, we need a lot of continuing education, and having the access to leaders in various fields is really critical. So I think telemedicine is part of that, but not the only answer. So you've talked about volunteers from Brigham and Women's. In a fourth perspective article in this issue, Hartman from the Nantucket Cottage Hospital talks about the difficulty involved in staffing a small, remote hospital. Beyond the volunteers, how do hospitals in your area deal with staffing challenges and meeting local needs? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a huge problem. As you mentioned at the outset, 20% of the United States population is rural, but only 11% of physicians practice in this setting. In my hospital routinely has about a 20 to 30% vacancy rate, both for physicians and for nursing positions. So it's not just physicians, it's doctors and nurses and radiology techs and IT support staff. All of these trained professionals can be difficult to recruit to rural areas. We do a lot of things to work on recruiting. We work closely with the National Health Service Corps and recruit those scholars. Our providers can get loan repayment through the National Health Service Corps as well. And that's been really crucial to our primary care departments. But the National Health Service Corps does limit its scholarships to primary care fields. 
And while there's a lot of focus on rural primary care, in some ways we've had a harder time recruiting other specialties, general surgeons, emergency medicine physicians. We've had an ENT vacancy at my hospital for about five years that we've been unable to fill. So it's not just primary care. So I work for the Indian Health Service, and they offer their own loan repayment program as well, which is offered regardless of specialty. They also have an Indian Health Scholarship Program, which encourages American Indians and Alaska Natives to attend health professional schools and then return to their communities after they've completed training. I think the biggest thing, though, is most of us try to maintain contacts at training programs. We teach a lot of students and residents, and I think that's a great way to introduce new doctors to rural medicine. But the benefit of teaching students and residents really goes both ways. It helps us recruit. A lot of them come back to work for us later, some of them. Uh, And I certainly did. I did a residency rotation for the Indian Health Service when I was in my training. But also, the students and residents who come to work here are so enthusiastic about their experience that they really remind our staff what's so wonderful about our community and about our practice. So working with them can be really invigorating as well. Finally, how much do rural communities rely on international medical graduates to provide care? And do you expect that the current debate about immigration policy is going to affect the number of physicians, again, serving in rural areas? Yeah, it absolutely will. The caveat is that I work for the Indian Health Service, which is a federal agency. So we don't offer visas for international medical grads, and we're limited to hiring only U.S. citizens for permanent positions. But again, we have a 20 to 30 percent vacancy rate, and so it's certainly possible that that policy impacts our ability to fill these positions. Of course, the irony is that I work for the Indian Health Service, and you know, relative to my patients who are Navajo and whose family have been on this land for hundreds of years, we're all immigrants. I'm not sure that it makes much of a distinction. But more seriously, 40 miles away from us, there's a larger hospital with some more specialty care. That hospital has a cath lab and it has inpatient dialysis that we don't have at our facility. And like many remote hospitals all over the country, that hospital is heavily reliant on international medical grads. And so we and our patients are as well. We're very grateful that they're there and that they're able to offer those services to us. Thank you, Dr. Kovic.